Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Let's keep going with the good news of Jesus' revealing story of his love for us. Listen, we'll be looking at a letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the original city of Philadelphia, was founded by two brothers. Um, That's why it's called Philadelphia, which means the city of brotherly love. Uh, That word phileo in Philadelphia is an ancient Greek word that means brotherly love, like what we share for one another. Well, these two brothers, little brothers, they founded the city called Philadelphia, but the knuckleheads didn't do the engineering survey right, and they built the city on a fault line. You know what happens when you build a city on a fault line? Every time there's an earthquake or tremors, the city crumbles to the ground. Philadelphia was that city. Not too long before Jesus writes this word of encouragement to the church of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia had crumbled again. Uh, From what I understand, I haven't been there, but I've been told, even if you go there today and look upon the ruins of the ancient city of Philadelphia, that there is still a column that is obviously in tattered, dilapidated shape. And on that column, you can make out the fact that it says this column, in their language, this column was erected by, and that had the name of the contractor, and it was basically crossed out and refilled in 14 different times. Because it kept having, a city kept having to be rebuilt. So imagine what it must have been like to be in the first century church, this grassroots gospel movement. You're enduring extraordinary persecution and hardship. You've been scattered from your home home countries and lands, and now you've pulled up into this city called Philadelphia trying to get reestablished, and you're constantly being tattered by earthquakes, and literally your physical world continues to crumble over and over again. Jesus has a word of encouragement for them today. Uh, On top of that, I call the church of Philadelphia the doubly discouraged church because not only was their physical world constantly crumbling, their emotional relational world was always under attack as well because they were enduring severe persecution for their faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus has a really, listen closely, Jesus has a really strong word of encouragement for a specific niche group of you this morning. Those of you that are doubly discouraged, that literally your physical world seems to be quaking, your emotional, relational world, you're coming under attack, you're experiencing persecution because of your faithfulness and your love for the Lord. But yet, this is why I say it's a very niche group of people that Jesus has a strong word of encouragement for this morning. Despite your physical world quaking and your emotional, relational world quaking, you continue to remain faithful to who Jesus is and what he's called you to. You continue to bear the mantle of the life of Christ on your life, living out this calling that you have received as faithful witnesses to the gospel despite the fact that you are just in great peril in your life. This is a word of encouragement from Jesus to you. It's a very niche group, I know, because most folks, once their world starts quaking and their relationships start getting rough, they just kind of dig their heels in the sand and they bail out on Jesus. This folks, these folks didn't, and some of you folks haven't either. You're actually trusting him in the midst of the peril, in the midst of the hardship. You're actually trusting him like Vanessa said this morning. 
She said, I love this. She says, I fall into fear when I define God by what I see rather than defining what I see by who God is. That's a powerful word and a reminder for you Philadelphians this morning that are going through that. And Jesus has a strong word of encouragement for you. But along with Jesus' strong word of encouragement for that niche group of you this morning, it's also an invitation for the rest of us to join that niche group. To jump in with a heart full of faithfulness, trusting God beyond what we see and beyond what we feel and beyond what we're experiencing, recognizing that he is the king and the Lord of all of that stuff. And every bit of that stuff has to bow before him. Life itself has to bow before him. Death has to bow before him. Disease bows before him. Mental illness bows before him. Everything has to bow before Jesus is king. And so you can trust in him. Doesn't make it easy. No, it sure don't. Come, Lord Jesus, hurry on up, please, God. It doesn't make it easy. But he's saying that you're not going to suffer it alone because I'm with you in it, and I see you, and I know what's happening. Pay close attention to what he says to the church of Philadelphia, oh, Philadelphians in the house this morning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the angel, the pastor, the messenger, the shepherds, the elders of the church in Philadelphia, write these words. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Hey, Grace, who is the Holy One, the true one, who has the uh, the key of David? Who is that? Nice job, 10 o'clock. Y'all doing good. That's right. This is the revelation of? Yeah, he's the Holy One, the true one, the one who holds the key to the king of David. Listen, here's what he's saying to you, oh, doubly discouraged Philadelphians who continue to walk in faithfulness with him despite your trouble. He reminds you of his character before he even acknowledges your trouble. He wants you to also do the same thing, to be reminded of his character and to fix your eyes on him before you fix your eyes on the trouble that's in front of you. And he reminds reminds you of three specific layers of his character that is set apart in a portion just for you, O Philadelphian struggler, this morning. And he want to remind you, number one, that he is the Holy One. Say holy. That's the ancient Greek word, hagaios, which means to be set apart. Jesus wants to remind you that there is none like him. There is none before him. There is none beside him. That he is the authority over all things. That he is the ruler of all things. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be topped. He is the preeminent one. He is first place. Everything south of him has to bow to him, including the stuff that's doubly discouraging you. He is Hagios, the holy one. Get the picture. Lair of his character number one meant to remind you this morning. Lair of his character number two is that he is also the true one. Say the true one. This is the word in their language, aletheos, which means not only does he speak the truth, He always speaks the truth. He's always true to his own character and true to his own word. But not only does he speak the truth, aletheos means that he is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He wanted to remind this doubly discouraged church that he is the set-apart one that rules and reigns over all things. But he is also the true one who speaks the truth and is the truth. So you can show enough, take to the bank, Everything that he has said of himself, everything that he's about to say to you, all the encouragement that he's about to share with you, and all the promises that he's going to share with you. He's the true one, always speaks the truth, always is the truth, 
Take it to the bank, baby. And last but not least, the layer of his character that he reveals to those who are doubly discouraged, oh, Philadelphians. He is the one who holds the key of David. And when he opens a door, no one else can shut it. And when he shuts a door, no one else can open it. He has finality in his kingdom. Listen, um, David was told by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God was going to establish the kingdom of David forever. He didn't mean David would be king forever, but he meant that David's kingdom would rule and reign ultimately forever. How God fulfilled that promise was he sent Jesus to be the king of all kings in the line of David. Jesus is, in fact, the ruling, reigning one forever, for all time, in the line of David. The big difference between David and Jesus is Jesus is the way true and way better David. David was the king of the Jews. Jesus was the king of the Jews and the king of the Gentiles, which is the rest of us, and the king of heaven and the king of earth. And he reminds us, using these Old Testament terms, that Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom, very much like how we would use that turn of phrase in our culture, to let us know he has all the authority of that kingdom. He has all the blessings and the benefits and the power and the might of that kingdom. And he tells these people in Philadelphia, oh, you doubly discouraged Philadelphians, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. When I open the door, no one can shut it. And when I shut a door, no one can open it. Oh, Philadelphians, what kind of door do you have this morning? An open door. And it's open to the Philadelphians. This kind of double-sided coin for them. When you have an open door to the kingdom, that means you are invited in by the mercy of the king to come and dine with him and be family with him and receive the gift of his love and his mercy and his friendship and his kinship. But when he leaves that door open for you, that also means, Grace Bible, that you get to invite others telling them about this merciful, loving king that wants to dine with you and be friends with you and forgive your sins and your iniquities and meet your needs and provide for you. Oh, remember, oh, Philadelphians, that there is an open door to these faithful ones to continue to be on mission. This is why the Church of Philadelphia is oftentimes referred to as the Church of the Open Door. Because they were a church, despite their hardships and troubles, they continued to be faithful to the mission of reaching people with the good news that our king has come, he has secured a victory for us without us even having to lift a finger, and he has invited us into his kingdom at his table to have a meal with him, to be reminded of his great love, so that we can be with him forever. And so Philadelphia continued to tell that good news story faithfully despite their hardships and challenges. But pay close attention to what he says in that verse 8. I know your works, O Philadelphians. Uh, Hey, doubly discouraged, faithful saint. This is the voice of Jesus saying he knows what you're doing. He's watching. He sees that you continue to serve despite the fact nobody seems to care. He sees that you continue to pray despite the fact that you aren't seeing the results that you're hoping for. He sees that you continue to give despite your own peril and poverty. He sees that you continue to trust in him despite the fact that your physical world feels like it's crumbling and your emotional relational world is too. He is paying attention to you. He knows your works. He's watching closely and intimately. He's not some distant cosmic God. He's all up in your business. He's paying close attention. And he says these powerful words later in verse 8. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word 
and you have not denied my name. Man, what a word of encouragement. May the Lord of heaven and earth be able to say the same thing of you and I. I know what you're doing. I see how weary you are. I see how discouraged and beat up you are. I see the little power, the little flicker of light that you still have going on in your heart. But I also want you to know that I see that you have not denied my word and you have not denied my name. That you have continued to remain faithful. Oh, that the Lord would be able to say that of us. What a beautiful declaration of worship that is. Listen, more powerful than any worship song you will ever sing to God is the song we're singing with our lives. It's this song of faithfulness, enduring, trusting in him. Listen, guys, I'm I'm coming to, to believe in my life as I've dealt with just more and more hardship and challenges in my own story and seeing in the word, seeing what he says to this Philadelphian church in Revelation. God, sometimes touching the heart of God doesn't mean that you had faith enough to move mountains. Sometimes touching the heart of God means you had faith enough just to hold on. Hold on, Grace. Continue to be steadfast and remain faithful. Trust in the character of Christ. Trust in his promises to you. Trust in the encouragement that he has for you this morning. I'm reminded of the words that Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when he was doubly discouraged, triply discouraged, as a matter of fact, because he asked Jesus three different times to come and intervene in this very hard situation in his life. And Jesus' response to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 was, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. Hey, Philadelphians, his grace is sufficient for you, and his power is made perfect in your weakness. Listen, we, we often feel like God is doing the most when we are doing our best. Not true. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, we feel like God's doing the most when we're doing our best. That's, that's when we start shouting the hallelujahs. That's when we get the praise ye the Lord's and the praise God's coming out of our mouth. And ain't God good's coming out of our mouth. Because we believe the lie that the enemy tries to whisper into us that God is doing the most when we are doing our best. And Jesus says, that's not true. I'm doing my greatest work in you when you are at your weakness because it is in your weakness that I am made strong, Jesus says. You know why? You know why in our weakness he is strongest? Because we get out of daggone way. We've run out of options. We done tried that. We done prayed that. We done sought every avenue to try to give us relief in that particular area to try to find some comfort from this doubly discouraged life that we're living right now. And so he says, when you've come to the end of your rope is when you actually pick up mine. Isn't it it the love of Jesus to get us right there, to get us right back at his feet, to get us right back dependent upon him because that supernatural power of God at work in our life is exactly what he wants to accomplish in you, through you, and as you through this doubly discouraged season, oh, Philadelphia, that you may be dealing with right now. You can trust in his character because he's going to always deliver on the goods of what he has said. Some good encouragement for the saints. Let me also share with you something that Peter said to you. I'm going to read it from the NLT translation for emphasis. Peter says to you, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. 
and trust your lives to the God who created you because he will never fail you. And remind you what Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 9. Do not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, the proper time you will reap the harvest. That's Jesus' encouragement, the word of God, encouragement to the doubly discouraged saint this morning who continues to plow the ground faithfully trusting the Lord despite all the other peril and persecution and tragedy that you may be dealing with right now just as the church of Philadelphia and then Jesus makes four promises to the church of Philadelphia. Uh, let me just read through all of them, and then we'll go back and unpack them individually. He says, verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they are not. There was a specific group of Jews who had kind of gone rogue, let's just say, and they had partnered with the Roman guard, and they were on a headhunting mission to try to eliminate Christians. They were front lines for for dragging Christians out into the street and having them persecuted or thrown into prison or killed. You get the idea. The Apostle Paul used to be one of those guys. He says, behold, I will, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, Jesus says, he even labels them, who say that they are Jews, but they're not, they lie. He says, behold, I'm going to make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, listen up, Grace, that I have loved you. It's a good reminder to the suffering saint that is a loving God who's paying attention to your works, who wants to remind you of his character and his nature. Promise number one. Promise number two, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Promise number two. Promise number three, I'm coming soon. Ooh, baby, that's the only promise I need. Come on, Lord. Beat me to lunch. I want to have the wedding supper of the lamb for lunch today. Yeah. Let's get out of here. It's a mess. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Promise number three. Promise number four. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Promise number one, let's go back. Promise number one, verse nine. He says, behold, I'm gonna make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who have opposed you, those who are persecuting you, standing against you because of your trust and me, he says, I'm going to make them come and bow down before your feet that they will learn that I have loved you. Pay close attention. Grace promise number one, vindication is coming. Yay, right? It's coming. Verse nine, vindication is coming to all of those who oppose the majesty and the glory of God. Through Christ Jesus, justice and judgment is on its way. But I want you to notice what Philadelphia's part in that was. The church, the people, notice it. This is the church of the open door. This is Philadelphia who continue to live on the mission of the gospel, reaching people with the gospel despite their own calamity and peril and persecution. Notice that though Jesus points out their opposers, he doesn't change the marching orders of the church of Philadelphia. Notice that he doesn't say, you know what? Since they're coming at you so hard right now, I want y'all to level the playing field. Matter of fact, here's some clever Jesus-y stuff for you to post on the internet this afternoon. <laughs> Notice that their marching orders don't change a bit. 
He says, he'll handle the vindication. He'll handle it. Well, that ain't no fun. I don't want to, I want to got something to say to them. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? I'm glad you asked. I guess. The Bible tells us what to do in the meantime. Surprise, surprise. You doubly discouraged, experiencing persecution, challenges, hardship, aggravating people that are coming against you because of your trust in the Lord. Here's the instructions, O faithful body of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome, which would have been a very difficult place to walk faithfully with the Lord in the early centuries. And he says this, chapter 12, verse 9 of Romans, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. There it is, phileo, Philadelphia. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in your tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, that's real cute. But what do I do about the bad guys? When are we going to get to that part? I'm glad you asked. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, even those that persecute you, by the way. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. Do I need to say that again for emphasis? Just wondering, huh? Y'all picking up what I'm putting down here? I'm going to say it again anyway. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I got this under control. I don't need your help. All you can see is what you can see. All you can feel is what you feel. I can see beyond all that. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus don't need our help. He don't need our assistance. He's not blind to what's going on to you in the world around you and what you're struggling with. He knows what's up. He knows who the bad guys are. But believe it or not, before the story of Jesus' justice and judgment arrives, is all of this the story of his redemption and reconciliation to the world. You know what Jesus' primary number one goal is in the life of the person that you hate the most? He wants to see them redeemed and restored and set free. He wants to see them transformed by the gospel. He wants to see them repent and bow their hearts before the king of heaven and earth. And one reason why he leaves judgment and justice and vengeance for himself is because he don't want you getting in the way of that reconciliation story, his ultimate goal to be gained in their life. And thank God it is because it was with you. Man, he loved you enough to seek you out to transform your heart. And so instead of inviting us into the vengeance side, 
to the judgment and justice side, you read all this, he invites us into the reconciliation side. Love even when they don't love you back. Serve them even when they don't serve you back. Give them food when they're hungry and something to drink when they're thirsty. And when they weep, weep with them. And when they rejoice, rejoice with them. Be a part of the reconciliation story of your enemy. And allow Jesus to use that in your life, through your life, as your life, for his glory. That's promise number one. I'll handle the vindication. It's coming. Don't you worry. Judgment and justice is on its way. It's by his grace that he's leaving space for people to repent, to turn to him. That is grace right there. We are in the grace era of awaiting the justice of God, being given the great commission to go tell the world of the good news that our king has secured a victory and invited us in through this open door to be a part of his family. Promise number one, vindication is coming. I'll handle that, not your problem. Promise number two, these next two promises, he speak of some very deeply theological and debated Topics. I'll give you a, a basic idea, but we won't get lost in the weeds. Promise number two. Because you have kept my word, say kept. Because you have kept my word, that's the word tereo, which means that you have, you have protected it, you have kept it, you continue to walk in it. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you, say keep. Same word, tereo. Because you have protected my word, Continue to walk in faithfulness to me. I'm going to keep you, Tereo. I'm going to protect you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That's a pretty strong promise right there. I like it. Now, we get into these timeless and endless theological debates on eschatology because of statements like this in Revelation. Jesus just told us to those who are faithful to him, that he is going to keep them from the hour of trial. That's really good news, whatever that means. We don't know exactly what hour he's talking about, how long it's going to be, or what trial he is referring to. Many scholars kind of aim to, well, he must be talking about the tribulation, the seven years of the great tribulation. Probably true, or something along those lines. And so this is where folks get the idea of, well, he said he's going to keep us from it, from it, so Jesus is going to come back and get us before the tribulation starts. Glory to God. That sounds good to me. I'm with that. But this is also where the great theologians pop in and say, well, what he means is he's going to keep us during the time of tribulation, continue to protect us, but he's going to pull us out later on. Or some would say, he's not talking about the time of tribulation, he's talking about the time of ultimate judgment that we will be kept and protected from that. So there you go, pre-trib, post-trib, ah-trib, all in the same verse. Let me tell you what we are. We're, we're pro come Lord Jesus. That's what we are. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know the day or the hour, but I wish you would hurry up. Man, please come and get us before things get crazier than they are. We might not be in the great tribulation, but we're showing up in a tribulation, and it ain't getting no better. But here's the... We, we could debate, listen, there are godly people who love Jesus and have a life submitted to Christ in all three camps, all right? So, but don't miss the point of what he's saying. 
He wasn't expecting us to barrel off in some timeless debate on eschatology in the end times. He wanted us to know the promise that because you are mine, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. Listen, the author of the tribulation is also the protector of his children. That's not two opposing forces. It's the same guy. And so you better believe that you can trust his character when he says, however it's going to go down, and it's still mysterious. And we can debate it all you want to. But one thing is for sure that you will be kept and protected and sustained. That's good news. This is why I've been telling y'all, the book of Revelation, though some parts of it are mysterious and a little unnerving, it is only good news for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is only good news. So this also tells me that this good news for those that are following Jesus, like you ain't got nothing to sweat, partner. You keep running towards Jesus, clinging to the vine. For those of you that do not yet know Christ, have not surrendered your life to Christ, like don't leave here today till we talk. You're going to have to talk to one of the other pastors because my voice is shot. But we're going to talk. I want to introduce you to the king of heaven and earth. I want you to bow your heart before the Lord, the lover of your soul. The king who so deeply loves you and is going to speak the truth to you and is going to protect you and provide for this hard journey called life and the ultimate end game of all of eternity. Promise number two. Promise number three, also a bit mysterious and has a lot of theological ramifications. He says, I am coming soon. Really good news. Promise number three. But he says, he tags us on there. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Ah, it was all good for a second there. What in the world is he talking about? Listen, scholars scatter on this one too. What it means to hold fast so that no one can seize your crown. Listen, most conservative scholars would agree that he's not talking about salvation specifically here, even though this has to do with our salvation in Christ and being in a relationship with him. And the reason why is because as we weigh out salvation, uh, how is it that we get saved and get forgiven? It's, it's through Christ and him alone. It's through believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected from the grave, that he is Lord and God and King, and he is alive, and he rules and reigns over all things. There's, there's no way for us to, like, steal someone else's salvation. We can't say, ooh, I like that. Let me have that. It doesn't work like that. So, so Jesus is not saying that there's some possible way that someone could come and steal your crown. He's actually not talking about salvation itself. He's talking about the reward of those who have endured faithfully. Listen, uh, the, the crown is used all throughout scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians when he says, um, there are many who are going to run the race, but you run the race in such a way to win the prize. There's going to be a lot of people cross the finish line, but you run in such a way to receive the crown. This would have been the wreath that would have been put on the head of the victors. Those that like, they didn't just like make it. They were all in. They were victorious. They, they lived out to the nth degree everything that they had set out to do. And he's saying, don't, don't be slack and just simply believing, but continue to walk faithfully. Continue to live in such a way that you're not missing out on some of the blessing that God has in store for you because you've lost hope or you've lost, you've lost trust or you've lost faith along the way in him or in his promises. Continue 
to be faithful because I am coming back. That's the promise soon. Promise number four, last but not least, this would have been good news for people that lived in a city with dilapidated pillars all around them with different contractors' names written all over them. He says, the one who conquers, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That temple will never be shaken. Never shall he go out of it. And here's the general contractor. I'm going to write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Jesus is going to honor you with a new home and going to honor you with his name being inscribed upon you in this temple of God, this new dwelling, this new family that cannot and will not be shaken. I love what he says, uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hey, Grace, listen. Doubly discouraged Philadelphians. Talking about a passage of scripture like this and trying to challenge you with it in an isolated state, just looking at this in Revelation chapter 3, it might leave you to conclude or assume that since you're doubly discouraged and you want the crown and you want the promises of Jesus, then you better figure out how to conjure up the willpower to hold on for dear life. That's what it can sound like. Keep in mind, Jesus is assuming that you have already read the circulated letters of the apostles. He's assuming that you already know that in Romans 8, 37, you were told that you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. He is the conqueror. He dwells within you. He assumes that you remember when the apostle Paul told the church of Ephesus that you were marked with a seal guaranteeing your inheritance. That when you became his, you became permanently his. That as he continues to preserve you, you continue to persevere. It all works together. He's assuming that you remember his words in John 15 when he said, he is the vine and you are the branches. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Cling to him. He's assuming that you would have remembered when the apostle Paul told the Colossian church in chapter 1 that you have been raised with Christ. Now fix your eyes on things that are above. This is Jesus calling us to fix our eyes again on things that are above, not on the doubly discouraged mess on the earth below. Cling to his character and to his promises and to the encouragement that he has for you this morning, Grace. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I confess that our flesh cannot endure. We cannot conjure up the willpower to keep trusting and to keep being faithful. Lord, we need a supernatural work of your spirit to just lay hold of our hearts that you would keep our minds fixed on you, not on the trouble in front of us, that you would keep our eyes fixed on the majesty and the power of God, not on the anxious thing that awaits us. 
Lord, we need your spirit that you have promised that dwells within all of those who believe in you as Lord. We need that sustaining force of your peace and your comfort and your wisdom. Lord, as, as we aim to persevere, Lord, would you continue to protect us as you promised you would? Would you keep us as you promised that you would? Would you hold tight to us as we learn how to hold tight to you? Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.